As I mentioned, our sermon this afternoon is on Lord's Day 16, in which we consider the articles of the Apostles' Creed that deal with Christ's death, his burial, and his descent into hell. So Lord's Day 16 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Because of the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. Why was he buried? His burial testified that he had really died. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Our death is not a payment for our sins, but it puts an end to sin and is an entrance into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? Through Christ's death, our old nature is crucified, put to death and buried with him, so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves to him as a sacrifice of thankfulness. Why is there added, he descended into hell? In my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, which he endured throughout all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. We'll sing following the sermon, hymn 28, stanzas 4 through 6. Loved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord's Day 16 considers the final articles of the Apostles' Creed that deal with Christ's descent and humiliation. We have seen who he is, the only begotten Son of God, and then returns to his work on earth, looking at his suffering and his crucifixion, and now the final steps down his death and his burial, that he even descended into hell. Christ died for us. So today we must deal with the topic of death, to die. Death is a horrible thing. We've all felt its pain, losing loved ones. And unless Christ returns to this earth first, each of us must also face death ourselves one day as well. Do you often think about that? Our society, they try as hard as they possibly can not to think about the fact that we must all meet with death one day. They think, might as well get everything you possibly can out of this life, because there is nothing coming afterwards. Though they try to imagine otherwise, Their lives are speeding towards a crashing end. And when that comes, it will be terrifying. But what about us? 
Do we sometimes act as if this life is all there is? Do we think about death? Are we fearful of it? Or of what will come afterwards? Well, beloved, because Christ humbled himself even unto death for us, we need have no fear of death. We belong to Jesus Christ, who gave up his life to redeem us. He is our only comfort in life and in death. By his death he has given us life, true life. In him we are raised from spiritual death today to a spiritual life. In his death we are also granted eternal life. So our theme for the sermon this afternoon is, Christ's death is now my life indeed. First we'll see that he died, secondly he was buried, thirdly he descended into hell. First then, Christ died. Why was it not enough that Christ should merely suffer? Why did he have to die? Why did he have to go all the way to death in order to save us? That's the first question that our Lord's Day asks. And the answer points us directly to God and who he is. It starts with the words, because of the justice and truth of God. Those are attributes of God. God is perfectly just. He cannot be anything else. It is who he is. And when we look at ourselves, then we are sinners. That means that the perfectly just God must punish us for our sins. He cannot do otherwise. And what punishment did God's justice demand? Nothing less than death. Eternal death. God warned us of that before we fell into sin. When he gave the command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden, he warned us, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And he confirmed that again after we fell into sin, saying, you are dust, to dust you shall return. The punishment of God against our sin is death. Spiritual and physical, even eternal punishment, the body and soul in hell, that is what we deserve. If God is just and also true. He cannot go back on his word. This punishment must surely be carried out. But notice then the catechism's answer. It does not say what we might expect Because of the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by our death. No, but by the death of the Son of God. So we see here then a third attribute of the only God coming into action. Not just his justice and his truth, but also his overflowing love in the giving of his Son to suffer the death penalty in our place. By his death, Christ has satisfied the wrath of God's justice against our sins. So God in his love gave his son even to death for us. And what did that death look like? In the first place, Christ died a physical death. Physical death means that 
His soul was separated from his body. That's what physical death is. Those two parts that together make up what a human is are torn apart from one another so that the body is left lifeless and returns to earth whereas the soul departs from the body. When Jesus died, he became lifeless, his body became lifeless and his soul departed and went up into the heaven into heaven, into the hands of God. Thus his dying words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But scripture also presents us with a fuller picture of what death is. Something more than just physical death. Death is closely connected with sin. I already mentioned the warning in the Garden of Eden In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Sin brings death. And the death that sin brings is separation from God. By sinning, we separate ourselves from God and thus we die. Dead in sin, even if we might be physically still alive. But that is not exactly why Jesus died. Sin doesn't lead to death just somehow in itself. No, it leads to death precisely because death, separation from God, is God's punishment for sin. And that is why Christ died. He bore our sin. He bore our punishment. Also, the spiritual death that comes as a result of sin that separation from God. So Christ died for us, also in the fuller sense of the word. Christ already, while he was still physically alive, while he was on the cross, bore eternal death, God's eternal punishment of our sin. He was forsaken by God for us and felt that utter separation and forsakenness in bitter anguish of his soul on the cross. And then he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Christ, by the strength of his divine nature, bore through this forsakenness by God, and so he overcame it so that he could bring us forever to be with God. And never be separated from him. Never be forsaken by God. So we will not be dead in sin. Separated from God because of sin. But alive in Christ. United to him. And loved by God. Christ has therefore by his death. Merited for us. Both justification and sanctification. We will have a look at both of these awesome fruits of Christ's death for us. In the first place, as you find in question answer 40 of the Catechism, his death made satisfaction for all our sins. Our justification, that means that we are made right in the eyes of God, that he no longer sees our sin. Our sins are paid for. And that is also Paul's point in Romans 5, verse 6 to 11, which we read. 
Verse 10 summarizes it well with the words that we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Christ's death merited justification for all who are united to him by faith. And then we are also called to cling in faith to this one and only Savior. He is the only one in whom we can stand righteous before God. Believe in him. Trust that by Christ's death and Christ's death alone, you can stand justified before the throne of God and that you do already today. For it is only by faith in him that we can have life. Listen to what he says in John 11 verse 25 where he is speaking to Martha after the death of Lazarus. He says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Is that our confession as well? I believe that you are the Christ. When we believe in Christ, when we have faith in him, then we are made right before God. Christ's death has also earned for us Sanctification, that is the work of the Spirit in our lives. Paul goes on in the next chapter of Romans to describe how Christ's death also means that our old sinful nature is put to death. And that's part of the Spirit's work in our life. Romans 6 verse 6, for example, we know that our old self... Our old self is our old sinful nature. Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Our old self was crucified with Christ. That means that our old self, our sinful human nature, the one that's inclined to hate God in our neighbor, it has been crucified with Christ. And similar thing in an earlier verse, verse 4, that we, with respect to our old nature, were buried with Christ by baptism into death. That means that our old nature, our inclination to sin, is put to death in Christ's death. That Christ's death means that the Spirit is able to work in us to cut away those things that are sinful in our lives. But we know from experience that old self, that old nature, is far from being all the way dead and buried. It still rears its ugly head in us. We do battle with it every day. And Paul also calls us to fight that battle. Verse 11, after he has shown that Christ has earned the work of the Spirit in us, he also calls us to partake of that battle. 
so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. What is the call then for us? We must put to death our old sinful nature. That is a spiritual battle that we must fight every day. And if we're going to fight a battle, we will need to equip ourselves with the whole armor of God, which is mentioned in Ephesians 6. Things such as the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And with these, prayer. With these, with this armor, we are ready to fight that spiritual battle to put our old nature to death. So let me ask, do you pray for the Spirit's work? That he might be your strength in fighting against sin? Do you put that sword of the Spirit, the word of God, to work in your life? Cutting out that which belongs to the old sinful nature. That old sinful nature must be buried in Christ's grave, never to rise again. Then we can really live. Our new nature can grow and come to life so that we can truly serve God. Let us then, as the Catechism says, offer our lives to God as a sacrifice of thankfulness. Paul also exhorts us to this in Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It brings us to our second point, that he was also buried. Why did Christ have to be buried? Well, this too was part of God's curse after the fall into sin. He said, to dust you shall return. And it was also foretold by the prophets as a part of the Christ's suffering that was to come. Isaiah 53 verse 9, They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. So Christ, in bearing the punishment for sin, also had to return to the ground. This, too, is part of the punishment for sin. Moreover, as the Catechism mentions in question and answer 41, Christ's burial was a testimony to the fact that he had really died. And this is very important for Christ's death and resurrection are central to redemptive history. Facts that Christ had really died and rose again had to be well established by testimony and witnesses, just as there were more than 500 witnesses to his resurrection. There is also for us an abundance of testimony that Christ really had died, and his burial is a part of this. But the fact that Christ was buried also had has a profound impact on what the grave is for us today. Consider the words of 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 and 14, in common verse. 
But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep, that you may not grieve, as others do, who have no hope. And what fact does Paul point to, to show that we do have hope? He says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So Christ's death and resurrection is to us a testimony that we also will rise again, that our loved ones in Christ will rise again. But death for us is still a terrible and wretched thing. It is painful for everyone whom it touches. We will all face death someday unless Christ returns first. And we are all affected by the loss of loved ones. It's one of the most painful things that we can go through in this life. It is inevitable that questions should arise. God's blessing isn't that life, but death. How is there anything good in that? Isn't death God's punishment? And has not Christ borne that punishment for us? If Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Why do we yet need to have all this pain and sorrow? Why can't God just give us eternal life without needing to die? These are fair questions to ask. And the Catechism does not exactly answer the question. Because this is not the sort of question that can be given a single simple answer. Death, the fact that we will have to die, the fact that our loved ones pass away, and why this is part of God's plan, that is something that we must still wrestle with in this life. For we are still pained by death. We weep bitterly when our loved ones are taken from us. Jesus also experienced this. When Lazarus died, Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Jesus wept. Jesus knew that Lazarus' soul was safe in God's arms. He knew that he could and was about to raise him again from death, and yet the bitterness and sorrow of death was still so real that he wept. Death is then evidence that something in this life is still very wrong. That in this life, not everything is right. And what is wrong It has something to do with that sinful nature which is still a part of us. This body of death. So death is still an enemy that we must face. But it is also an enemy that has already been conquered for us. Christ has conquered death by his own death and resurrection. Hebrews 2 verse 14 tells us that Christ came so that through death... He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What death is for us today, then, is completely changed. When we die, unlike Christ, it is most certainly not a punishment for sin. Our death is not a payment for our sins. 
Christ has borne that punishment for us. He suffered the death penalty for us. How then ought we to view death? Our own death, the death of loved ones. It is helpful to think of it as the final step in the putting to death of the old sinful nature. What we have been struggling to do our whole life is now completed for us. The battle that we have been fighting is now won for us completely. Our old sinful nature, crucified, dead, and buried with Christ, never to rise again. Buried in his grave. When our body is buried, our old sinful nature is buried with it. And that old sinful nature will never rise again. In other words, death puts an end to all sin. Have you ever considered that before? That our death not only means the end of our suffering, that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, but also means the end of sin, the end of our sinful nature, the end of our struggle, and the beginning of a new life in which we can serve God perfectly without sin. And yes, Just as putting that old nature to death in our lives now is painful, so also death, the final death also of our sinful nature, is painful. Our death then is a door, a painful door through which we must pass, but on the other side is not eternal death, but perfection and eternal life. 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the most encouraging passages in the face of death. Verse 20 reads, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. But as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Jesus died and was laid in a grave, and yet God raised him up from death. So now we who are in Christ, when we stand round the grave of a loved brother or sister in the Lord, do not need to lay that body to rest in fear, but can do so with the sure hope that God, who raised Christ from the grave as the firstfruits, will also raise all who belong to Christ at his coming. We have therefore in Christ's death and resurrection the richest comfort, not only in life, but also in death. Christ has been there in the grave before us, and he arose. As one author put it, it is as if he has sanctified the grave by his presence there. We can now follow in his footsteps with comfort and hope. That brings us to our third point, that he descended into hell. The next line of the Apostles' Creed, after he died and he was buried, reads, he descended into hell. His phrase is, Controversial. What does this mean exactly? Should we have it in our creed? 
Is it scriptural? Scripture does not in any place say precisely that Christ went to hell. So various views about its meaning have been given throughout history. Some have taught, based on passages such as 1 Peter 3, verse 19, that Christ literally descended into Sheol after he died, while he was in the grave, in order to redeem the righteous who had died before then. Others have taught that this is actually a part of Christ's exaltation, that he went to hell almost as a triumphal parade over the devil. But these are not possible explanations because we know where Christ's soul went after he died. It did not go down to hell, but up into heaven, into the hands of his Father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What then do we mean with this line in our Apostles' Creed? The Catechism explains it well for us. And if we understand it in a scriptural way, then he descended into hell is a truth which reveals to us the depth of Christ's love in his suffering for us. This line refers to the extreme extent of Christ's suffering, his suffering throughout his whole life, but especially on the cross. It is not, therefore, some sort of journey to an underworld after his death, but it is the hellish agony of God's wrath which he bore in our place on the cross. But we might ask, why mention hell if Christ did not actually go to the place called hell? Because hell itself was precisely the punishment that he bore on account of our sins. But he bore that hellish punishment not down in hell, but on the cross. He therefore did not physically go down to hell, but it is almost as if hell crawled up to him. He descended into hell means that Christ suffered in body and soul from the beginning of his life to its end, that he bore God's wrath against the sin of the whole human race, and that he bore that wrath especially in his unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony on the cross. And this is all an amazing comfort for us who, because of our sins, deserve that awful punishment. Hell. The Catechism mentions that this is an assurance and comfort to me in my greatest sorrows and temptations. This is for each one of us when we are at our worst. When we are terrified of the judgment of God. When we doubt our salvation when we see our own great weakness, when we fear the awesome wrath of God, also when we ourselves come face to face with death, then we know, because Christ suffered hell on that cross, I never will. I need not fear God's terrifying wrath, because Christ has taken all of that wrath upon himself. This is for each one of us. So, also in this life, your cancer, 
your illness, that is not God's punishment for your sins. Christ has borne hellish agony in his body for you, so that you will never suffer God's punishment in your body. And your depression, your temptations, that is not God forsaking you. God forsook Christ so that you will never be forsaken by him. All the punishments of hell were laid upon our Savior. He suffered like no other unspeakable anguish of body and soul. He was terrified and in all the agony of hell, so that I might enjoy heavenly bliss forever. Yes, the cross stands for us between heaven and hell. Cling then in faith to Christ alone. He is our only comfort in life and our only comfort in death. And when we face death, we can do so with no fear of judgment. We need not fear death either then. For though it is terrible, beyond it lies life and perfection with Christ forevermore. To all those who reject the only Savior, Jesus Christ, death is rightly a terrifying thing. But for us, we can look at it with hope and comfort in Christ. We know where we are going. And when we stand at the graveside, we can say with confidence, this believer is with Christ, is in God's arms, even as we speak. And we also eagerly await and pray for the day when Christ shall return and all will be raised with bodies immortal and then death will be no more, wiped away forever. In Jesus Christ we have eternal life. Let me conclude by reading again Jesus' own words from John 11, spoken to Martha after Lazarus had died. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Amen.